Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. Isaiah is a wordsmith if ever there was one. He possesses the broadest Hebrew vocabulary in all the manual and uses at least 25 words that appear solely in his prophecy. For example, in 3.16, where Isaiah's Hebrew word tafa is translated as strutting or mincing, or 57.20, where refesh brings more colorful mire along with the mud. If you're a seminarian patting yourself on the back for knowing the schmancy term for something appearing only once in the manual, Humility looks better on you. Doubling down on the theme of tragically missed opportunity, Isaiah shifts easily from love song lyrics to a raft of poetry denouncing the gluttonous hoarding of resources, censuring the pursuit of drunken revelry instead of the pursuit of me. The most terrible sentences of all time says, Therefore, my people go into exile without knowledge, with their gluttony replaced by hunger, their drunkenness by thirst, their bounty by destitute vagrancy. Isaiah 5.13 I have made available to them a bounty unassailable, but they have exchanged it for a cheap imitation. As I give them over to be cared for by the other impotent powers in which they trust, Exile will take my children from their homes, allowing sheep to feed among the ruins of the rich. 5.17 Yet mixed in with these sober themes also comes from Isaiah the promise of eventual return for at least some of our children, restored after exile in what can be nothing less than a new exodus. Yet even this points further forward. This is where the greatest beauty of Isaiah lies. He not only speaks of a remnant of people restored to Jerusalem that will experience our presence again as in the days of the book of Exodus in our pillars of cloud and fire, wonder enough in view of the present crisis. Far greater than this is Isaiah's prophecy of a time to come in later days when all nations will come to me. In that day, all may learn of me and walk in my lighted paths on the way. That's Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. If you haven't cracked Isaiah open yet, we insist you read at least that handful of verses. 2, 1 through 5. Go on now. In that day, the mountain on which my house, my temple rests, will become the highest mountain of all, and all nations will stream to it. I am not warning of some cataclysmic earthquake that thrusts skyward by over 26,000 feet the 2400 hill on which Solomon built my house. The nations are not all going to have to scale Mount Everest or its equivalent to find me. Those who could make it that far would hardly constitute a stream. However, 
We are speaking of a tectonic shift in all of life that is to come, a new reality toward which we have been striving this entire time. You see, the phrase all nations gives it away as the ultimate goal towards which we are working, but still have long ways to go before we reach. Because at this point in time in Israel and Judah, the point at which Amos, Hosea, and Isaiah are delivering their sobering lectures, all the nations around them are not even close to heading in my direction, and in fact are leading our people the opposite way. As a matter of fact, while our original commission of our people included the thought of Israel influencing the surrounding nations as a light shining into the darkness, the flow of influence is so very much reversed from that direction that the most that can be hoped for now is that all ties be cut off and the tide of influence staunched. Isaiah is speaking of another age, another phase in the Abra plan. That's where all nations come in. Remember? Our promise to Abraham that in his offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed. First, we would make Abraham a great nation. Check. And give that nation a land of its own. Check. We have followed that plan along with, who else, Abraham's offspring, Isaac, Jacob, his twelve sons, their eventual family tribes, and so on. We have stuck to the Abra plan through all the conquest and all the glory and all the drama and all the heartbreak. Through it all I have been faithful to all my promises, though my juvenile children are unable to hold up their far more limited responsibilities. The Abra plan can still move forward in spite of their looming covenantal consequences. And so, even as he begins this warning to my children of the exile that now is sure to come, Isaiah raises a leitmotif of hope in order that my children know even in and through the midst of their pending self-determined consequences at their brutal neighbor's hands that all is not finished. Though my children have rejected my instruction and despised my word, even as I signal a nation far away, in Isaiah 5.24, to set its sights on Jerusalem, Isaiah can see and foretells the time beyond punishing exile that will bring an abundance greater even than Israel might have had in her land had she kept up her side of the covenant. Now that he's got everybody's attention with this opening epic summary salvo, Isaiah presents his credentials. Your habitat might call it a flashback. We call it a great template for you to live by. Here's why. Isaiah meets me face to face. Not in a burning bush, not even on a mountaintop. Nope. I lift the curtain and let heaven and earth intersect a moment in our first and closest encounter. And yep, we've got to ask you to read this bit for yourself, seeing as we've already warned you that Isaiah is about to have a prototype experience on which we'd like you to take notes and emulate and all. Please read Isaiah 6 at this point, or at least its first nine verses. I'll wait for you. There, that wasn't so bad, was it? 
Come on, you. Here's another chance to do the right thing. Read the blessed passage for my sake. Now, let us briefly examine this archetypal moment. As I said, we remove the cosmic veil, and Isaiah sees me seated on a throne, a huge one. And you don't have to read the passage, and I know who still hasn't, and I tell you, you're missing out. You don't have to read the passage to know where that throne is situated. I am seated at the designated intersection of earth and heaven, right where we moved in with all the pomp, circumstance, cloud, fire, and smoke back generations ago when Solomon invited us into our temple. Second Chronicles 5, for when our ark is moved into the Holy of Holies and a cloud of glory fills the place. Chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, for the glorious fire from heaven consuming the waiting sacrifices. And the chapter in between, for Solomon's prayer outlining all that our temple was meant to be. This time, though, my ark is gone, and I am sitting there instead. The ark has been representing and pointing at me the whole time. With me present, it's superfluous. The statues of cherubim are gone as well, having been upgraded to living seraphim, cousins that possess three sets of wings each instead of just one. Six wings allow them to remain aloft while they use one set to cover their faces so as not to look upon my blindingly stunning visage and another set to modestly cover their private parts. I am wearing a robe so monstrous that it fills the temple, but the seraphim are not clothed. They tried it once, but got their wings tangled in the fabric and kept crashing into each other. The angels have deep, sonorous voices that they're using at their finest full volume, so much so that the sound waves produced are literally shaking the place. And what they say? You know what they say. Pretty much sums everything up. We talked about the word holy early on since it's my primary quality. It is who I am and the reason for the Abra plan. Actually, my love for you and deep desire to be in direct relationship with you is the reason for the Abra plan. My holiness is what makes it necessary. This is not something that I am apologizing for. If it were, the seraphim wouldn't be proclaiming my holiness for all the universe to hear. Then, whenever the seraphim call out, the whole earth is full of my glory, it reminds me of our declaration that everything made at creation was very good. It still is very good, and you still are very good at your core, having been made in and bearing our image and all. There's no escaping, though, but humans have consistently made poor choices about things, to put it mildly, in chronic succession. Those poor choices are what bring us to this calling of Isaiah to inform his countrymen of the course on which they have set themselves. We are not quite there yet. First, you've got to notice Isaiah's reaction to all that he's witnessing here. There I am in all my glory. The place is filled with smoke, stirred by the massive wings of magnificent heavenly creatures, 
as they proclaim my holiness and glory so loudly that the whole place quakes. Echoes of Sinai in Exodus 19.18, or Psalm 104.31, or 144.5. Does Isaiah launch into me with a demand that I explain myself to him over what bothers him about the state of human affairs? Does he begin listing things he'd like to receive from me? or other things he'd like me to do for him or for people he knows? Or does Isaiah simply join in the praise with the seraphim? Surely that would be a good thing to do. Isaiah does none of these things, because his initial reaction to standing before me in my presence, witnessing my glorious holy righteousness, is this. He has an instant awareness of his personal lack of righteousness, his own unholiness. Woe is me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh Sabaoth in Hebrew, again, Isaiah 6, 5. First, let us note that lovely final turn of phrase about me being king, a phrase ripe with meaning on the heels of generations of flawed or failed human kings, now on double thrones over my children. We could go off on that a while, but refer you again to all the issues around kingship back when we suffered Saul's coronation. Isaiah knows that I am the king and the seraphs have certainly made sure he knows that I am holy. In fact, as Isaiah writes, his favorite nickname for me will be the Holy One of Israel, using it 26 times. This phraseology is only used six other times by other writers, and half of those are in the Psalms. Just now, Isaiah is more aware in this moment than in any other of his life that he is not holy. He immediately senses his contamination in stark contrast to my utter cleanness, and he cries out in fear, certain that we are about to fry him because he is a man of unclean lips. Now, Isaiah's not feeling bad about not brushing his teeth or washing his face before so important an appointment. Isaiah's lips and the speech that issues from them are indicators of the entire course of his life. From them issue the fruits of his heart, soul, and mind. And he knows that, though he may kiss his mother with those lips, there is plenty that comes forth from them he would very much like for her or me not to hear. Feel free to draw parallels with Moses and his awareness of his mouth's weakness, but that was more of an excuse to get out of the job for Moses than a moral awareness like Isaiah's. When Moses told me his mouth was weak, I told him I could deal with it. When Isaiah declares his conviction of oral corruption, we don't discuss it. I just handle it. Or rather, one of the seraphs does, who takes a coal from the incense altar, which somehow has managed to not get knocked over in all the seraphic action. The altar is a poignant locus of offering incense as prayer up to us in this place where earth and heaven intersect. 
It carries double meaning in its cleansing and calling Isaiah to a ministry intended to reconcile earthly humans with their heavenly Father. The imposing angel touches the coal to Isaiah's lips, symbolizing our removal of his guilt and atonement for his sin, thus allowing him to remain unscathed and unfried in my presence. Then I just happened to wonder aloud, gee, who can we get to do this important mission for us? Isaiah, bless him, practically raises his hand, jumps in the air, and shouts, Ooh, pick me, pick me! Which, of course, we do. We'll look at his mission next time. It's not like you don't already know what it is at this point. Until then, keep walking with us on the way, and remember, there is never a time I do not love you. There is never a time I am not with you, my dear, dear child.